Voices of VR podcast. Hello, my name is Ken Pai, and welcome to the Voices of VR podcast. It's a podcast that looks at the structures and forms of immersive storytelling and the future of spatial computing. You can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. So continuing on my series of different experiences at the Doc Lab in Amsterdam, today's episode is with a piece called With These Hands, which is an immersive storytelling piece that is exploring stories of survivors of sexual assault. Made in collaboration with Sleek, which is Survivors Leading Essential Education and Change, it's a survivor-run organization that changes systems, supports survivors, and dismantles the roots of male violence. And one of the things that's really fascinating about this piece was trying to explore new consent models. And so what are ways to collaborate with a group where they actually become a co-creator with equal authorial control and ability to decide what happens with pieces like this? A lot of times within the documentary community, a creator will go into a community, have them sign all these image release forms, and immediately at that point, the documentary filmmaker will seize ownership of all the different aspects of the story. And sometimes those power dynamics and relationships are such that the subjects don't have a lot of say of how their story is told or how they would tell the story or even what stories to even tell. And so this piece, in a lot of ways, exploring new models of those consent models, but also looking at this ongoing and enthusiastic models of consent to see how that continues out through the lifetime of the project. And so the other aspect about this piece is really exploring different aspects of hand tracking and embodiment and seeing how you can use the virtual experience to give you this sense of being embodied into some of these bodies. Not in the sense that you're directly experiencing any direct experience of sexual assault, but it's creating a small tabletop vignette of a fraction of a context and also exploring different dimensions of consent as a viewer that you can put your hands onto that table and that scene and it'll stop whatever story that's being told at that moment. And so you have a little bit of agency as you're within a virtual experience to say whether or not you're okay with the story moving forward or not, or if you need to take a pause to digest something. And so using that conceit of the hands and you're embodying these different characters as you're listening to their stories, and yeah, just these three different scenes that are exploring three different stories and perspectives of members of Sleek, which is the survivors leading essential education and change. So that's what we're coming on today's episode of the Voices of VR podcast. So this interview with Tessa happened on Sunday, November 13th, 2022 at the IFA Doc Lab in Amsterdam, Netherlands. So with that, let's go ahead and dive right in. So my name is Tessa Ratajinska and for the last five or six years I've been a producer for VR and XR in general, working with artists like Jane Gauntlet and also was a venue host for Limited Immersive for a while and a curator for them, so I've been in the space and for the last four years I've been doing a PhD in VR documentary and that's culminated with this piece with these hands which I would still call myself the producer of more than anything else, which is showing here at IDFA. Okay, great. Maybe you could give a bit more context as to your background and your journey into making immersive documentaries. So my background's actually in fine art and installation art. So I did my undergrad in that and was really interested in projection mapping in this very kind of like the roughest kind <laughs> with like no technical know-how, just a projector and jiggering around, which funnily enough is like more or less the same method has been implemented here. And I was really interested in like spaces as non-fiction experiences, how like an environment could tell a non-fiction story and the way you move through that environment. And then I kind of discovered VR documentary and was like, oh, it, this is it, this or this could be it. And yeah, I was really lucky enough to work with people like Catherine Allen and Jane Gauntlet on their work and really learn, learn from what they knew about the industry. And then through that ended up on the PhD, which was funded. So it facilitated me to kind of like make my own work because obviously if you're working as a producer for lots of different people, you never get your own brain space to sit and think about your own ideas. And the PhD is actually about investigating the empathy machine. So the kind of like trope or concept that VR is a natural generator of empathy, which I'm quite critical of. So all the works I've made as part of my PhD have been trying to counter that. And I would say this is really the pinnacle of that, trying to make something that's not salacious, not overambitious, not claiming too much, just a space to listen and to listen to real people's stories and also to work really closely with those people whose stories are in the work to understand how they want those stories to be told. Hence, I call myself the producer because I feel like I 
organised for them and facilitated that for them rather than having a strong directorial perspective and, and maybe also working in the art industry for a long time knowing how hierarchical production can be and how crunched VR production can be and trying to unpack that and make space for slowness and for reflection and also to really think through consent like consent with your contributors but also consent for the audience how they consent to listening to the work yeah that went on a bit of a tangent but they go <laughs> What was the turning point when you said that you saw immersive documentary and that was really catalyzing for you? So what was the piece that you saw or what was the the complex of events that led up to that turning point? I think I actually saw, I believe it was a national theatre piece about Calais, I believe, but it was shown completely out of context. So I think they usually show that in an installation, but it was just like an option to watch a video in a headset. And probably that's also where my critique started coming in early as well like this is quite a strange way for me to come across this like what I'm finding as a very intense experience to be quite unguided into just finding that on a headset but like obviously the experience that was just a 360 video but the the immersion I felt in that space was really profound to me subsequent after doing research in VR as part of my PhD I actually think it doesn't affect everybody in the same way I think particularly for me I find it very very engaging as a medium and I find the idea of learning through being in a space seems quite natural to me and so I tend towards actually this piece is quite linear and narrative but like I also love VRs where I'm just expected to be there and to experience it and like the magic of how VR feels from a sensory perspective and utilizing that to tell stories yeah well, I wanted to pick up a bit on this thread of the empathy machine because it has been a trope ever since Chris Milk's famous talk that he did at TAD 2015. So 2015, there was Clouds of Vesidra that was the basis of the talk. So I know there's been other critiques around against empathy, you know, authors that are kind of critiquing different aspects of empathy. But yeah, I'd love to hear what your take is in terms of what is wrong with calling VR an empathy machine or what is the critiques around how to have that proper relational dynamic of empathy with this medium mm. well <laughs> this won't be the clearest my thoughts are ever at with it cause i've made this piece and now i have six months to write my phd so definitely in six months i'd have a much clearer answer but i'll have a go i think my main and it's not my critique it already exists in the world is this idea is is empathy really the most efficient emotion or the thing that audiences are obliged to feel in a work about refugees like is feeling sorry for and feeling for that person really the best use of energy or is there something that could be more mobilizing to help people understand what their responsibility is in that situation which is not just feeling for that person who also isn't really there with you they're pre-recorded they can't feel your empathy they don't receive any benefit from it all that happens is you feel better for having felt it and you feel relieved of your burden and you can take the headset off and carry on with your day having done what it felt like was expected of you and maybe there is particularly the work that's around people of migrant experience like maybe that's not the most helpful thing to elicit from your audience but then I do think obviously that's maybe quite a specific critique of a specific word and like feeling for or having an understanding for the people who are inside the works that you my experience is important it's not like I think that nobody should have any feelings in VR and then like my second critique would be maybe a certain kind of pomp or self-belief that some makers have that they've made a really emotionally impactful work because people come out crying but those works maybe haven't been made in close collaboration with the people they're about and that those subjects have been used as a kind of like heartstring pull tool to make someone feel like their piece of tech is very effective and all the people that I've made work with we've worked really closely with the people whose stories are featured in the work and that remains really important to me and obviously is like a key feature of this work that's in the festival now. Yeah, I know that at IFA 2022 there's the launching of the co-creation as a book and so all this talk about shared authorship and this idea that it's not just the authorial control of just one author kind of swooping in and capturing these stories in almost kind of like a colonizing way of swooping in and extracting out the story and then what is the editorial control so I don't know if there's a framework to kind of like make sure that this process is more in right relationship or what is the way of understanding as we move into this new 
realm if this model of co-authorship or co-creation is a good guide work or if there's other frameworks that you point to to have more of an ethical production that you are not having that colonizing force but more working in collaboration with the subjects that you're covering. Yeah, I would say, to my knowledge, there's not like a one hard and fast methodology that would work. And actually, I was part of the panel with Kat yesterday about co-creation. And even with my work, obviously, I worked with them collaboratively. But like true co-collaboration, it would be that the idea for the piece originates with the people who are inside the piece, you know, that it comes from them. But until VR and these technologies are more accessible in all kinds of uses of the word, people don't feel like that space like that technology is for them that it's worth telling their stories through that medium and maybe they're right because it is a very exclusive audience that you end up showing to but why I'm hoping to come out of this project because this project definitely did originate with my idea of this photogrammetry of hands and using the hand tracking and the kind of sensory experience of touching actually your own hands in the work but feeling like you might be touching somebody else and using that to talk about empathy and to maybe slightly critique the self-indulgent nature of the empathy machine but I'm hoping or or that I felt like when I spoke to the survivors about how they feel about how survivors or victims are represented in media that there was a an alignment of how we felt about a certain kind of othering gaze that's put onto survivors and definitely used a lot in VR and maybe that we could work together to make a bit of work that talks about both those things about the representation of survivors in media but also talks about this particular media and how it has often relied on those tropes but my conclusion to the project will be when I show the work to the survivor group the larger group and we work together to think if the project was successful and what would be a true sign of success for me was if they would then have their own ideas of a VR that they would want to make because I'm very conscious that this was like my idea for how it would work and that they let me use their stories inside it so yeah like a much more like co-collaborative or co-originated project would be like a sign that this was successful I think yeah Okay, well, maybe we can take a step back and talk about the piece that you're showing here with these hands, and where did this project begin for you? So the project began actually with a personal experience of being twice removed, but close to someone who was accused of sexual assault. And I use that word not because I don't believe that it was true, but I actually can't, can't, there's no other simple way to explain what happened. And realizing that in that moment like from this side of it so if you're not around the survivor themselves but you're around the person that's accused there's really like no framework of what to do people find it so uncomfortable to talk about it and what usually happens is that person is then just excommunicated and maybe that is what needs to happen eventually but the awkwardness or people wanting to wash their hands of the subject made me realize that people really struggle to talk about this and and also to struggle to listen to obviously the voices of survivors who would be the most important people to be speaking on the subject. So the piece originated with the second chapter of the piece. The piece has three different pieces of original writing in it and the second one is written by poet um, and spoken word artist 1990s Chris who also makes a lot of work about masculinity as I do and we work together to think about this like first person narrative and both of us but me particularly were thinking how important it would also be to have survivors voices represented and I'd already done a project with Sleek who were the survivor organization that I approached to be the consults on the project so they worked with me the whole way through the project to work out how it should look how it should feel and how I could best approach it to think about how we could make that work and in the end we ended up getting some funding that was just about consent processes so it was just about me and sleek running workshops with the survivors asking them how they would feel if a documentary maker who works in vr was going to make their story and how we could do that in a consensual way and we ended up looking at not only consent processes like a consent document that documentarians would usually use with contributors but also the ethical agreements that universities because it's a phd project universities have a certain ethical process and we looked at all those questionnaires those frameworks and the survivors really tore them apart really and exposed how much those consent documents are for the protection of the institution they're for the protection of the filmmaker and they offer no protection to the contributor and they don't do what they're supposed to do which is give the 
contributor a way to hold the maker accountable to a certain promise of what's going to happen. And so that first bit of funding was just about how we make a kind of interactive consent agreement because obviously consent is enthusiastic and ongoing. That's like the bar for consent to hit. And so to just sign a, a release form and it never be spoken about again just wouldn't work. And it, certainly in this context, and I believe in, in any other. So the project grew out of that process and Sleek have a disobedient survivors blog where they publish the original writing of survivors. So we approached two of those survivors that had written pieces. Actually, one was written by Sleek themselves and one was written by a survivor and uh, asked if they would lend their writing to the project and in that process contributed them as authors. You know, they're paid the same as everybody else. They have the same rights in the project as everyone else. They're paid uh, consult fees and also for their writing. And also the final part of that is that we have an agreement that it shows here and it shows as part of my PhD, my, my Viva event. And that if it ever shows again, I'd have to renegotiate with all of them their contracts, just as you would with any other kind of writer. So, yeah, that's, I guess, some of it, how it originated. (laughs) And what does the SLEEK acronym stand for again? Survivors Leading Essential Education and Change. Okay, and yeah, the disobedient survivors was either mentioned in the write-up or you mentioned it here as well. So maybe you could give this sense of, like, what is the disobedient aspect of that? Because there's a part of this experience where there's a certain expectation of what you expect the survivor to say or do. And to some extent, there's certain narratives in this piece that were directly from the survivors that were not what I was expecting. And I think that's maybe part of the point of the disobedient aspect of that. So maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit, just because it, it is the larger context of your piece is giving voice to some of those alternative narratives that may not be as predominant. Yeah, I guess I would first caveat and that like if you're interested totally check out Sleek's actual work because this is their area more than mine and they already have a voice they already have their blog they already have a podcast they put their work out there and I think it really just doesn't filter into spaces like this where there's a lot of maybe hard-hitting in inverted commas documentaries that don't consider like yeah uh, survivors certainly have their own voice and certainly have a lot to say and that should be where you're looking for information but yeah I guess to go back to the origin of the project this idea that it's very hard to talk about and it's very uncomfortable to talk about and that they're naturally you have to get used to listening to survivors and used to listening in a way that you might be uncomfortable like it might not sound like what you felt like you wanted to hear like it's not an easy thing to hear and that includes ideas about policing and imprisonment like that maybe some survivors and victims feel like that is what they want that kind of retribution and others don't and the idea that actually there's not a unified voice of survivors either like they're just people they're individuals they have their individual opinions and the sleep piece I wanted to include is really all about that it is about like challenging this idea that survivors are only shown through their hands as kind of like shadowed figures who are ashamed and broken and actually like that stops people being able to identify with the concept of being a survivor because they don't feel like that and so they think well that's not me you know and also like really frankly when I approached Sleek and said I want to make a piece of work with hands and hand tracking and they were like we hate hands we're sick of seeing our own hands in work so you know I I did think that this works differently if you embody the hands then you're forced to think of the person as an individual as a real person embodied as you are and like seeing a hand as actually this very personal thing not just like a general image of a hand it's like it's the survivor's actual hands that have been scanned but I really wanted to include that critique so I wanted it to be in the project like yeah they are in some ways actually anonymized and a lot of VR also works like that like seeing people particularly at their most vulnerable at their most you know you crystallize in maybe a 360 documentary about for example a refugee you crystallize someone in the most traumatic moment of their life and actually they're a whole person they have a whole life outside of that and maybe there's something to be slightly critical there of how VR can be very fixing very othering yeah love to hear a bit more context for the decision to make this into like a first person narrative in the sense that you are embodying the author that's speaking but also the environmental context that you're in is a little bit of a a void space in the sense that for the most part you don't see exactly where you're at except for like maybe a small little cutout that's in front of you that very much feels like maybe inspired by some of your background in art installation spaces it's like a little mini context setting of a space but in a very small way 
where it's, I guess the mechanic in this piece is that there's a table in front of you and that on top of that table, there's this environmental context. But other than that, you don't have a sense of the total environment, but you can at any moment put your hand onto the table to pause or stop if it's, you know, I guess to give that agency to listener if things become too intense, if they need to stop or pause. So yeah, maybe those two things of that interaction mechanic, but also the decision to have the hands and this environmental context in this more constrained context. So the idea of the hands, just the mechanism of the hands, actually came from doing an audience engagement session for Limina, testing different VR works. I did the climb. Have you done the climb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, it's not my cup of tea. Like, I'm not interested in VR games, and you have these hands, and I hadn't read the instructions, so they got, like the hands got raw at some point I was supposed to chalk them but I didn't know how and like I didn't enjoy it that much but I didn't think that much of it I took the headset off I was set up and then afterwards I went to sit down at my computer and looked at my own hands and suddenly had this like real moment of depersonalization and realizing like yeah I'm just a sort of like person inside my hands and thinking like this is really interesting I think it's actually Jaron Lanier says it in his book that the best thing about VR is when you come out and you see the world and how like vivid it is <laughs> and VR just reminds you like the comparison allows you to see the world more clearly and so I really found that a very interesting experience and really wanted to make a piece of work that used that idea and then not to get too much into theory but I really love the work of Sarah Ahmed. She talks a lot about the skin as being this site between people and especially in the othering that happens to people of difference like it exists on the skin it's something that's put onto your skin so understanding the technology of photogrammetry and how you would use the texture that would come out of photogrammetry to wrap around the model as a skin and sort of like hopefully my PhD I'll be able to sort of pick out something that makes more sense from that but those are my thoughts on that and then approaching the survivors after building a relationship with them for another project and saying you know do you think it would work in this context and then the idea of like what happens on the table also comes from a critique of like a desire of some VRs to really simulate an experience and that the goal is like full simulation and it was very important that this work didn't feel like a simulation for lots of reasons but mostly because I absolutely didn't want people to think that what they were going to experience was the simulation of somebody's uh, a violent incident that happened to somebody like that's absolutely not what the work is about and in terms of what appears on the table like in one scene there's moss and daisies in another scene it's a pub tabletop those came from the people who wrote those stories so it was their idea of what that would look like what that would feel like what that would sound like and so you'd have to ask them why they decided (laughs) to do that obviously the pub one is a little bit more you know that's the situation this guy this fictional character is in when he sees this message that someone has made an accusation against his friend but the other one is much more atmospheric I think it was about for her um, Nimroa who wrote that piece about for her like where she wanted people to feel like they were when they heard her story and in terms of the mechanic the pausing mechanic that was again about consent like listening is really important and listening survivors is obviously very important but listening is a choice and there should be a choice in that and so you had to give audiences a way to take a breath or a moment if they needed to or to indeed leave if they had to and that's something that sleek always they run workshops for survivors well they run lots of different things but one thing they do is run collective spaces for survivors and making sure that people know not only how to leave but that it's fine to leave and that there's absolutely no judgment if they should choose to leave is important for them so it had to be included in the work and also for me like a lot of VRs I've done have had this non-consensual element where you'd put in a headset and then you have to kind of like watch what unfurls even and you might not know what's coming and yeah sometimes that does hit you in different ways and you might not want to be there and the headset itself carries all this weight of being like a piece of shiny tech that seems cleverer than you and like a general audience as well like a public audience don't feel empowered to just take off the headset obviously you could but like most time people don't so giving people like very clear instruction of how that can happen and that be also something in the real world like you're not lost in this VR space that you have no control over it's just like a very simple mechanism yeah that was important to me yeah yeah it reminds me of uh, Zohar Kafir's uh, testimony piece where you're watching testimony of women who have suffered from sexual assault and there's a mechanic in that experience where you you turn away and it, it sort of pauses or stops the 
testimony at that moment so that you can still be immersed within the experience but then jump out if it becomes too intense and so yeah i don't know if you have other thoughts in terms of like how you've seen experiences that are not consensual in that way and what are some other baseline mechanics of consent that could be integrated into some of these projects well, first of all, I'd love to talk about testimony because, yeah, obviously that project has been very influential on this project. It not only gives consent to the audience who could stop listening if they want to, but it's also more consensual for the person who gave their original testimony. That if you're not listening, then they don't speak. Like, it gives you both this agency and it's important to protect that for your contributor or collaborator or whatever the word you might use, even in this pre-recorded technology. And maybe a work... I don't want to speak badly of works but I can speak as somebody who's put a lot of people through VR which I think is a real benefit to my practice or like I find it really helpful anyways I've watched a lot of audiences do VR and I've observed how they can behave and I remember really vividly showing Gabor Aurora's piece with Pinchas he's a holocaust survivor and the last goodbye that's what it's called and the last goodbye is really sold on the idea that this is very realistic simulation because they LIDAR scanned these different spaces inside a particular uh, concentration camp? Yeah, I can't remember the, which one it is, but yeah, a concentration camp and like it's real and then the Holocaust survivor is kind of like flat projected into that space and he talks in this like very beautiful way about his memories and it's incredibly intense and it did have content warnings or trigger warnings about the content I mean you know what it's about when you go in but what I observed is that because the photogrammetry is so good or LIDAR or whatever you would call it but it also is very still and it is so good it almost feels like a computer game like that's where you've actually seen stuff like that before and some people treated it like that so some people were like just so interested in how the tap had been scanned that they wandered away from this person as they were speaking about like the most traumatic moment of their life and they wandered away to kind of like put their hand through a wall or like look around an object because it is really immersive it is really engaging to see those spaces but yeah I felt particularly in that work like the assumption that people would just listen was maybe an over assumption of some audiences and perhaps like also this idea that if you scan something super realistically then it feels very real and actually it had the opposite effect it felt like a fake simulation you didn't have to be respectful in a way that you would if someone was talking to you actually face to face so yeah both those projects had a real influence on this one and like not that I think that's a bad project but like I actually saw how it worked in practice and it wasn't I don't think how the makers had envisioned it yeah yeah, well, I wanted to talk a bit about my experience of this piece because it has a way in which that you're embodied in these hands and you're listening to the story, but you also see the subtitles that are in front of you. So you're, I'm, I'm kind of reading along and listening and projecting myself into their... I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm... I'm still listening, but I'm, because I'm embodied in their body, it gives me this interesting, like, who am I in this scene? And then I am in this projected as a female-identified body and then a male-identified body. And then the, the final scene... Is more of a, a black and white mixed reality pass-through where I see my actual hands in this piece and then the narrative is still continuing. So because of the hand tracking aspects, if you put your hands by your side, then your hands are no longer being tracked. And so I wanted to see the hands because it felt like that was a part of the experience. But then I ended up having to put my hands up for you know, 10, 15 minutes, however long the experience is, which gets a little fatiguing because of the constraints of the tracking technology I ended up kind of like leaning back and putting my hands on my stomach and then still at different moments during the scene just remind myself of the embodiment because I felt that was a part of the experience but I guess I was really struck by embodying other characters and it made me see my own hands through that black and white low res mixed reality pass through camera of the quest 2 kind of reflecting in my own embodiment in a way and almost to the point where I was like really focusing on my own body more than I remember what the third section was about so yeah maybe you could talk about these different sections and what that decision was to kind of switch at the last scene but also I guess the challenges of the fatiguing nature of having your hands up in order to have the hand tracking work so yeah like this is the first time this has shown like ever it was commissioned for IDFA so definitely there's been some like how it works in an installation context is being felt through this exhibition. But definitely, I think I've got a handle on it now, which is inviting the audience to scooch up as close as possible to the table so that you might have the opportunity to rest your elbows on the table and therefore your hands won't trigger the 
pausing and if you start a little far back from the table it's maybe not intuitive to do that. When I did testing, so I spent a period of time in the University of Malmö doing research on this project with researchers from the Center for Sexology and Sexuality Studies and I showed it to them, to different researchers from there and we had a discussion about the awkwardness of the hands, of not knowing what to do with your hands and, and I tested telling people very directly like where they should put their hands and then in other times just letting people feel their way and there was something kind of nice about the awkwardness of it, like remembering like what it is to have hands and not knowing what to do with them. I think if you're introduced to the experience with the idea that your elbows could go on the table in a way that's not too directive, that is helpful for the fatiguing but it's definitely something to think about for an accessibility perspective as well and you mentioned the subtitles the subtitles are there to make it easier to listen in that if you just your needs dictate that you would need to have subtitles there and what's the second half oh yeah the camera pass through moment that really was born out of a desire to make audiences really aware that they are also present in the experience. So many VRs ask you to feel for someone else, but don't ask you to question the politics of how you're there watching that and how that came to pass. And trying to use the idea that we would see our own hands at the end as a reminder. And also that part of the work is talking about like how survivors are just people. They're, they're anyone. So that's why survivors can't match this image of a survivor in your head because it's too prescriptive and maybe reminding you of that and I hear what you're saying that it was harder to listen in that section I, I found when I've showed it some people hear one more than others and it doesn't seem to be any one in particular some people were there subtitles in that third one or not yeah there were subtitles in that one but maybe you were just looking at hands too much yeah I, I noticed that there was the sign on the back but I would have to do it again to get that last section but yeah but then you did say to me earlier in this conversation the idea of like an image of Survivor and how they may might not be up to it, which is what that works about. So you must have taken something in. <laughs> but yeah, obviously this project was made on a very small budget. And so we were limited in, you know, like how, how could this be achieved? And I thought maybe camera pass could work like this. And I feel like it did. I, certainly in the exhibition where you actually have the real table and the spotlight allows you to see more coherence between that scene and the two scenes that have come before. But the work actually in exhibition now, it has a little QR code on the paper next to it. And I'm really hoping to get people's feedback about which pieces resonate with the most, how they felt, what they feel like it achieved or didn't achieve I'm obviously really interested in getting feedback yeah and have you had a chance to show it to members of Sleek yet so all along the process obviously we've been sharing assets actually the audio of that piece they recorded that themselves with a performer it's not their voices so each of the people whose work it is have had chances to like feed in on the process but yeah none of them use VR or like are particularly actually even interested in VR personally so they haven't got headsets and I wouldn't ever ask anybody to investigate side quests who didn't have like already a, a little bit of knowledge about it because it's excruciating process so they haven't seen it in a headset yet they've obviously seen it but they've not seen it in a headset so hoping to do two more showings when I get back to the UK in Glasgow and in Bristol where the are the two like hubs of production for the work and um see how they feel in vr and and the whole time i've been having to kind of like just be that voice for them of like well in vr i think it feels like this but we'll see how you feel when you do it but for me it feels like this and there have been some things that have been interesting for example in the first scene there is a noise of a siren because we're talking about policing and to just like set that tone. And when I showed it to Naroa, whose piece that was, she thought the siren was sounded scary. So we were gonna take it out. But then she asked me to ask people about different parts of the piece, what stood out to people when they listened to it, when we were doing our user testing, and nobody heard the siren. And so like in the limited feedback rounds I had with the VR company, so I worked with Cora VR. So I'm not a developer. So that was another kind of like part of the production that was maybe like not totally conducive to this co-collaborative process. There was a certain point where we had to hand our assets to someone else and they were really generous with their time and worked really hard. But, you know, we had limited amount of change that we could do in the work. So a lot of it had to be pre-planned. And so we've left that siren in just in favour of stuff that's more integral to like the mechanics of the work. But yeah, so far here also nobody has heard the siren. Did you hear the siren? I don't recall, no. I'm <laughs> trying to remember, yeah. I guess the one that stood out for me is the second one in terms of hearing about one of his friends that was accused of sexual assault and that the stigmatizing reaction to that. And I don't know if that 
was coming directly from Sleek or if it was like one order of separation away from Sleek or if whoever was articulating that story, if they themselves are also a member of this organization of Sleek. So that piece was written by 1990s Chris, as I said before. He's like a poet who makes work about masculinity. But the way that piece came to be is that Sleek run men's learning courses where men can come and kind of like learn about rape culture, learn about patriarchal masculinity and try and think of ways to unpick it in their own lives you know and Sleek are really generous with running those workshops and then when Chris and I approached them and said we wanted to do something from this perspective they put us in contact with people who'd done those workshops and many of those men who come to those workshops it is because they've gone through this experience and they didn't know what to do and so some of those men and also some because of Chris's work people who follow his work are interested in these ideas as well so we put this kind of open call out Chris interviewed four men who've been in this position and it was really interesting because actually those four men that were interviewed ended up having very different like their full stories are very different like how that incident ended up whether they did ever talk to that person again whether they did go through a kind of like healing process with that person or whether they just stop talking to them it was different for each of them but their originating moment was the same this moment of finding out and not knowing what to do realizing you don't have any language and that also there's like fed in there I think this part where maybe rape culture is dripped into our society and we kind of let it pass and people maybe let their friends treat girls a bit badly and think oh well he's not a bad person but yeah that wasn't great and then it does come to this head and you think well actually is there something I should have done earlier you know because in some ways it reflects on their own identity because they're associated, so they have to reckon that in some ways, right? And you have to come and weigh and think, oh, have I ever made someone like feel like this? Maybe I have. And what Chris articulated really beautifully, I think, was that there is this moment for him in this kind of patriarchal masculinity where it is very reliant on like how other people perceive you. And this character does say, like to kind of try and say to himself like oh he's a good lad like he's not like that and then maybe she's just thinking of it wrong or maybe she's just upset and then he says to himself like now I've said it I mean doesn't say it out loud he's in, talking in his own head but it's like when I say it like that yeah it does sound wrong and it's all about how they're going to be perceived and yeah like the piece kind of ends there with this decision to like not meet up with the friend in that instance but I would really love to explore more of those stories and the next steps of those stories as well but for this first version of the piece I definitely wanted to make sure that survivors voices are obviously the most important and should be the most heard so that's why we also included the original pieces of writing from survivors as well but yeah that's the piece that probably is also the one that it was a very interesting piece to articulate I think to like put into words literally. Well, you had mentioned earlier this idea of the ongoing consent and most of the, like, the image release form paradigm is all about, like you said, signing one document at the beginning and then the creator has free reign to do whatever they want. But as you're changing into a new model of trying to have ongoing consent that is ongoing and enthusiastic, does that mean that you've created like a legal framework that articulates that or is it more of like a, a handshake agreement? Because I know that when we're talking about media production, there's these expectations of having clearances of this stuff and creators want to have the ability to capture stuff and to use it but yeah at the same time they don't want to take something that's going to be used out of context or something that the end creator's not going to consent to and so I don't know if there's a process of like getting a green light from the creators that, that you're covering or if you've actually articulated that into like a new legal framework to be able to have this more ongoing process relational approach to consent rather than this existing object-oriented one. So I wouldn't. I don't know if I go so far as to say it was a completely legal framework. Hopefully, this won't end up in any kind of court of law. But seeing as they're both, like all the survivors are abolitionist, I'd, I imagine that's like probably not going to happen. But yeah, we had to come up with a kind of consent framework that worked because I had to have a consent framework as part of working as the university, and I'm also a producer that works almost exclusively in Google Drive. I'm like very comfortable in Google Drive, and sometimes that worked well, and sometimes it didn't. We tried to run a workshop. With with like a consent frameworks with everybody working in a Google Drive and actually that didn't work <laughs> because there was too much explanation needed of like how they could interact with the document but what did work is giving the person that I'm working with 
access to this one consent form in Google Drive. We've both got access, equal access to it. We can both see every time it's been changed and we've kind of made a promise to only change it together. And we would have these multiple meetings, which in the beginning when I approached them, I said like, you know, minimum three, but hopefully more of these meetings where we talk about the work, talk about like what currently exists, what we're hoping to make, whether we still feel comfortable, whether it still feels like something you're interested in. And every time we do that, we'll go through these lists of questions about like, do you feel informed enough about what the next steps is, for example, is one of the questions like about specific next steps. But it also has a ton of like blank sections where I could say to them, like, is there something that you want to put in here? Because it also holds me account, you know, like in the end, it became a document, hopefully a document between us where I'd made promises to them about what would happen. But also there was this understanding or like trust built between us that I didn't have all the answers, you know, but because we'd gone through these processes, which also they were paid for. That's the other thing is like paying people for their time fairly. You know, like they were taking two hours out of their day to sit with me on this project. And so they were paid as any collaborator would be for a two hour session. And yeah, like working through these questions basically together and thinking about the next step. And sometimes they couldn't consent to something yet because for example, the photogrammetry, one happened in a studio in Bristol, in the University of Bath actually, in their camera studio. And then the other one had to happen more ad hoc in Glasgow because that's where we were based. So. We didn't know exactly how that process would look the first time we did the consent agreement, so then that was just left blank, you know, until we could fill it in. And it just went like that. And then by the time we were doing, like, deep production with Cora, we built up enough of a rapport that I could be like, OK, you're going to need to let me know within 24 hours if this feels good to you, or if not, what we're going to do. Yeah, that's how it's kind of worked out. But definitely having the knowledge that it's going to show here. I mean, if they'd said, I don't want to be part of IDFA, I would have taken out their work. I would have never shown anything that they didn't say they were happy to show. But yeah, knowing it's going to show here and then it's going to show to them and then it's going to show just in my PhD and then there's no further obligation, I think help them feel like, okay, well, we'll see how it is. So it's quite hard being at a festival where people are like, where are you taking it next? And what more money do you want? And I'm like, I have no idea. I have to, we, have, we have to chat it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it sort of puts you in a unique position in the sense that if they revoke their consent, then that's basically in their project, aside from your PhD. So I guess we'll end there in terms of this section here. So what's next for you? With sounds like you have about six months to kind of wrap up the PhD and the thesis. And so how is the work that you're showing here going to feed into like a larger elaboration, either in a thesis or a defense of your dissertation? Yeah, so this is a practice-based PhD. So this bit of practice is like a large portion of it. And then I have to like justify <laughs> this piece of work, which I do feel like in a good place to do that because it has been so rich to like show it to audiences and work out why I made and, you know, be asked by people like yourself, like, why did you make this decision? And yeah, so to be able to like write that all down and articulate that, I hope it will be really helpful, even if I do anticipate it being slightly painful <laughs> to sit for six months and write 50,000 words or whatever. And then at the end of my PhD, then emerge from a darkened room, I suppose, and see what's next. But I'd love to make more work with Sleek. I'd love to make more work with Chris. I'd love to make more work specifically about masculinity and like interrogating that way of behaving, that patriarchal masculinity. That's what all my work kind of stems from. Um, yeah. Awesome. And, uh, and finally, what do you think the ultimate potential of this type of immersive storytelling and immersive documentary might be and what it might be able to enable? Well, you're hearing me fresh off of a round table that was about like accessible futures and the XR space. And I do think that there's a huge amount of potential in the XR space to really think about multi-layered accessibility from multiple perspectives. So not just captioning or adjustments for people with different kinds of hearing or sighted issues or different kinds of bodily mobility but on a more expansive idea about yeah like people feeling an authorship and ownership of this technology that they have as much right to make work in this space as some of the like Chris Milks of the world not to you know I think he does get used as somewhat of a punching bag but you know what I'm referring to when I say that yeah and so like making the technology these spaces like festival spaces more accessible in an ideas way that people feel like they have scope to make work in this medium and that what they make could be just as good if not better as someone who's been making work in the immersive industries for however long that's the thing i'm really excited about anyway and i want to do the most i can to try and make that happen yeah that's what i would say <laughs>
Is there anything else that's left unsaid that you'd like to say to the broader immersive community? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. I think I said it. I think, uh, yeah, making space to review the successes of your projects, not just on, like, whether they fulfilled your kind of maybe ego-driven idea of how it should work, but also from multiple perspectives and inviting other people into that process of reflecting on, on if it was successful. is a very vulnerable feeling to offer yourself up to your collaborators in that way and say, you know, does this work for you? But I think it's really important. And obviously the book on co-collaboration and co-making, it, that's what that book is all about as well. So it's a good theme for the festival, I think. Yeah, for sure. I'll be talking to Kat and William tomorrow about that book and unpacking it some more. So, uh, yeah, lots of really interesting ideas of consent and the future of that co-creative ongoing consent as we do these immersive works. And, yeah, this use of embodiment in this way of being in this first-person perspective and changing embodiments and, yeah, just all the ways that you've been able to use the immersive medium to tell these stories in a way that... I feel like is different than other media to actually be embedded into the scene and yeah, really powerful in that way. So yeah, thanks for joining me here on the podcast and helping unpack it all. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that was Tessa Ratatushinska who produced a piece called With These Hands that was showing at Ifa Doc Lab 2022. So I have a number of takeaways about this interview is that first of all, well, the thing that really stuck with me was this idea of how consent should be enthusiastic and ongoing. I hear a lot of talk about consent in the context of sex-positive communities and in intimate relationships, but in this context of taking the idea of consent and bringing it into the usual power dynamics of the documentary filmmakers and the creators, and so how can you have more of a co-creative process in that creation of these different stories? So Tessa mentioned that she was a part of a discussion that happened of the Collective Wisdom Co-Creating Media with Equity and Justice, which is a larger project that is from the MIT Co-Creation Studio in this book that just came out, trying to evaluate these more collaborative and cooperative frameworks that go beyond the single authorship, but have more of a communal process-driven approach. And so just in the process of how she was able to create this experience with Sleek, which is the Survivors Leading Essential Education and Change. And in the show notes, you can get a link to Sleek, as well as one of the pieces by Norora Hammerson, which is the Bloomery Muffins piece of original writer that was published on the Disobedient Survivor blog. That was the first section that was a prison abolitionist not wanting to use the criminal justice system to imprison her rapist. And so, yeah, that piece of writing was either directly read during that first section or uh, some sort of adaptation that was made and, and narrated in that section. So just to go back to the structure of this piece, there's these three main sections where you're getting three different stories. And each time you go into the story, you are embodying the person of whomever is creating that story. You see their hands. And the author of that story was able to also create this tabletop subsection of an area. Most of the different piece is kind of like this void space, but you see this area that is overlaid atop of a table that you're also sitting in this little booth and you're able to put your hands onto that table and at that point whatever part of the narrative it will stop it might be nice to have an option to be able to skip forward because if there's something where you don't feel like you can go forward at a certain point it'd be nice to be able to have some sort of gesture to move on to the next chapter i know that testimony vr did a great way of being able to go in and as you look away you're able to pause something or you can also go backwards and go into other stories and maybe come back to it later so having more of a non-linear structure to a piece like this i think would also be be good when you're thinking about different elements of consent and really having control because it is still kind of on a linear path as you're going through a piece like this and so having maybe a little bit more options to have even more agency but having a user interface that makes sense to be able to do that and i think they're just trying to add a little bit more agency for the listener so that they don't feel like they're being subjugated to a story that they don't have much consent over what they're receiving and if there is some section of that story that for whatever reason is too intense, that they're not all of a sudden being forced to miss the entirety of the rest of the experience. And so, yeah, just really deep thoughts around how to think about some of those different aspects of consent and also the deeper thoughts around empathy and, again, trying to be in right relationship to the communities that we're engaging with and not going in and extracting the story and then being able to tell that story to show the power of the technology and say, look how amazing this technology is of being able to draw out emotions, de-emphasizing what the stories that the community is actually trying to tell or this other element that Tessa is saying 
saying is that, you know, you coming out of an experience through a mediated, whether it's a film or a podcast, or in this case, a virtual reality experience, and you have all this emotion and it makes you feel this kind of pro-social, like you're doing something, but unless you're able to either take action or be in relationship for the other person to receive the benefits of that empathy, either through an emotional context or if you're able to establish some sort of relationship after that. And so there's all sorts of different dimensions that she has critiques over the way that empathy has traditionally been talked about within the context of the broader community. Again, kind of referencing back to this Chris Milk TED Talk that happened back in 2015 of the Empathy Machine which actually goes back to Roger Ebert had coined the empathy machine in one of his talks when he was actually talking about film. And so the empathy machine as a phrase actually predates what Chris Milk did and goes back into something that Roger Ebert was saying as well. So, yeah, I think this is a an interesting piece that, that starts to put you into the body of the person who is telling the story. And so this gives us other aspect of like, usually when you're in a documentary, you are yourself. And so there is this element of like, what character are you rolling? And what does it mean to start to embody the hands of these different characters in these little vignetted tabletop void space experiences that have this kind of art installation vibe in some ways, or trying to give you the sense of like, you're waiting in a bar in the second experience where it's a, a man who is friends with somebody who's been accused of sexual assault and he's deciding whether or not to ostracize him or still maintain relationships with him. And yeah, it's sort of the dynamic of people who are at sleep talking about these other complexes of rape culture and how it is rippled out into our culture. And yeah, they have a number of different educational workshops and, you know, their mission statement is they're, they're a survivor run organization that changes systems, supports survivors and dismantles the roots of male violence. And so, yeah, just trying to explore these different themes. And in the last section of the piece was more of a mixed reality pass-through. And so while you're embodying these other characters, then all of a sudden you're embodying your own body as they go through the last section there. And they're talking about the disobedient survivor aspects of this organization. And uh, yeah, just the other aspects of accessibility and ownership of, you know, who is owning the stories, who have access to the stories. And one of the things that Tessa said is that eventually getting to the point where these types of stories are organically coming from these communities themselves. And so finding ways that other technologists and creators can help to facilitate the process of telling these different types of stories. So that's all I have for today. And I just wanted to thank you for listening to the Voices of VR podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, you can spread the word, tell your friends, and consider becoming a member of the Patreon. This is a listener-supported podcast, and so I do rely upon donations from people like yourself in order to continue bringing this coverage. So you can become a member and donate today at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. Thanks for listening. 